Welcome, my friends, to Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat, the podcast that never ends, where we gather our clan and talk about the peace and love in our lives, the difficulties along the journey, and how we rise up from them. We will experience a little thing I call cluberty together, and by the end of the show, we're going to find our sweet spot. I'm Uncle Dave, and our transformation starts right here. Hey now, and how are you doing? I want to welcome you to the next episode of Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat. Today we have an amazing author, philanthropist. I can't wait to talk to Tracy Medford-Rosso. How are you doing this morning, Tracy? Very well. And you? I'm doing well. This is Life is good. Keep moving on our path. You and I have talked about being on our paths. And so this, right now, your path is to come out with your third book, and the book called Unsheltered. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's a story of um, what happened during the early months of the pandemic in New York City. So my husband and I were in Turks actually on vacation when we got the news that the borders were closing and we had to come back to the country. And so we ended up in New York City, which is where where we live. And um, we walked into a, a it was very hard to describe what New York City was like in, in 2020 in the early days of the pandemic. But it was um, it, it sort of resembled a war zone because there was no people and everything was boarded up. So I think it was that very first night that we got back. I looked out the window and I noticed that the streets of New York City were just completely and totally deserted. It's almost impossible to believe unless you live through it what New York City was like during that that first year of the pandemic, pr- pretty much for most of 2020. There was just nobody to be seen. And the people that were still living there, like us, really didn't go out that much except to go to the grocery store, to the pharmacy, stuff like that. People were sheltering in place. But what I did notice and what I noticed for the first time in my life was that the the homeless people were still on the streets. And I was watching them and it it occurred to me that, you know, where were they going to shelter in place? But what didn't occur to me until a few days later was that they were starving and because they depended on eating pretty much from getting panned, you know, the panhandling activity or being able to go to the, the different places that, you know, offer food and stuff, but everything was shut. So the next day I went out to the grocery store and I noticed them again. It was the only thing that was, um, you know, visible, mm-hmm. the only people that were visible. And I, I said to Joel, my husband that I think we need to try and, do something. So we weren't homeless advocates at that point. We didn't know really much about homeless people. And I hadn't, to be honest, really noticed how many homeless people there are in New York City until it became, they became obvious because of the lack of any other people. Mm. So we just started the next day, which was March 19th. We returned to New York City on March 18th, 2020, walking the city streets handing out a few dollars to the homeless people that we met. Um, and that quickly turned into realizing that we needed to start making food because there, w- there really was no food. And the animals were, were also starving, which was an interesting and sad thing to see because animals in New York City aren't, aren't wild. Uh, I mean, are domesticated, but they're not actually wild. They're very dependent on the food droppings, you know, the, mm. the bird that, we drop food, you know, when we eat outside, when we're walking along on the sidewalks. So I really noticed that the, the the birds and the squirrels in particular were starving, but so were the homeless people. So we set out on this journey 
that last is, well, we're still in it. So it's two and a half years now that we're now involved with the homeless people in New York City. But in the, those early days, all we did was get up every morning and make food and then just walk the streets um, till we couldn't walk anymore. And at some point, I started to really understand a little bit about the psychology of homelessness and what led people into that very unfortunate fate. And I started taking notes, keeping a journal. And then I wrote the third book, um, which is called Unsheltered Love, Homelessness, because, Hunger and Hope in a City Under Siege. Yeah, most most of us um, are, are, are really just, you know, one or two paychecks away from being homeless. Uh, I mean, if we think about it, you know, it's not all, not everybody has that those savings. And, and it's very easy for that, those things to happen to us. It, it, it really it really is. I lost a few good friends during the pandemic, um, not from COVID actually, but just from the financial stress of not being able to, to, to make ends meet. And that, that unfortunately resulted in their deaths, which is also in the book. But the book is primarily about the homeless people we met and their, their individual journeys. And I, I sort of centered on maybe 10 different people so that it wouldn't, there wouldn't be too many characters in the book. And one of the women in particular, who's a, actually a friend of mine at this point, she wrote um, her she has an entry in the book after each chapter so that you sort of see the situation from if you will both ends of the sidewalk you know she was living on it and and I was walking them but um so the story is told from this perspective of me um and a homeless woman who writes under her the pen name of of Maggie Wright so that it's it's an interesting sort of juxtaposition of the viewpoints of two very different mm. women, one homeless, one, you know, um, fortunate woman who was still a, I was able to work through the pandemic. I, I have, uh, after working, you know, in corporate America for many, many years, I opened a law firm with my partner. And so we, we were still able to work and I, it became very, aware i became very aware that how how fortunate i was that mm. i was able to work on zoom and so many people not I mean, the homeless were obviously very badly affected but so were the waiters in new york city the hairstylists the manicures all the people who were dependent on being able to work face to face in order to earn money and not everybody can work on zoom and it it so i became very very aware of how lucky I was and also how difficult it was for the people to, to, to survive the pandemic who couldn't, couldn't work the way, you know, the way I was still mm -hmm. able to work. So. Yeah. yeah that, that's, that's been a blessing, you know, for people who uh, like myself as well, who are able to work through it and not have to think about it. It really, the pivot was really, really easy, especially because I had been working from home at times, you know, so now it, it was even better. I had always said I love my job. Uh, the the commute was always uh, the rough part. Uh, you know, being in, in my I guess privileged way of looking at it. But you know, the things that you're bringing up, I had even hadn't even thought about how the whole food chain, right? So you know, we're all on the food chain, including the animals who then didn't weren't able to go to the garbage bins. Uh, you know, right. as well as the people who are unfortunately go to the garbage bins. So, Want to hear? Right, right. So I became, you know, very acutely aware of sort of the financial hardship of the people that weren't able to work 
the way mm. we can work and that we're really dependent on being able to go to work. And as much as, you know, the, the government did what they could in terms of the stimulus checks and the unemployment and all, it was still very difficult for them. And um, I really saw, I live right in the middle of midtown Manhattan. So I really saw how the people were suffering who, who just couldn't, who couldn't work, you know, and it went on for a long, pretty long time before, you know, even the, um, the restaurants were able to open finally for outdoor eating only. But even at that point, there were still so many people that were nervous to go out. And so, you know, most of the outdoor venues were still empty and, and (laughs) it was a struggle for everybody, but I, I can't remember it. I, you know, the, the, the first year I, I was by myself a lot. Uh, so I, I volunteered to deliver food you know, through a, a charity here on Long Island and driving around at five o'clock to, to make sure people had meals and not interacting with anybody. But there was nobody on the road. I can't imagine right. what the city was. I mean, I've been in the city during the blackout uh, and, 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 and 9-11. 9-11 was also one of those real times when there's nobody on the street and everybody was as quiet as a pin, but I can't imagine nobody walking out. We were all afraid at that time to get out of our, our, our own homes. And if you were lucky enough to be, you know, not be uh, homeless and uh, right. Exactly. Exactly. No, we were, everybody was afraid. Well, we were afraid too, walking the streets and, you know, interacting with the homeless. But I, I just didn't feel like we had any choice because Mm. as I, you know, looked out my window and saw people starving. I, I just said to, to my husband, Joel, I said, well, we have two choices. We can stay here and shelter in place and order food in, fresh direct delivers, the grocery stores deliver, maybe slip down to the grocery store every now and then, or we can make food mm. <laughs> and go out and take our chances. And we're both, you know, I mean, Joel is 71 and I'm 67, so we're not young. And we're, we're, you know, the, the, it was clear that the, that the virus was more dangerous, the older you got. Um, And so it wasn't that we just, we weren't carefree about it, but we just, neither one of us really felt like that we had a choice. And it was a very transformative experience for me because something very odd happened in the midst of, what we were doing, which is that I realized I was very happy. And I, I, I realized I was probably the happiest I've ever been in my entire life. Mm. I was absolutely at peace. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't quite understand what was happening to me because how could I be happy? You know, I was in the middle of a pandemic in the middle of New York city. I wasn't able to see, you know, even my own children, much less any of my friends, there was nothing open. There was suffering everywhere. You Everywhere you looked, there was some form of suffering right down to the animals. But I was at, I was in, I was in total peace for the first time in my life. I was, I felt absolutely at peace. And I started to realize that what was happening to me was that I just wasn't thinking at all about Tracy. There was no time, no bandwidth to think about Tracy, even in the most, um, basic needs like i i see all i have hundreds and hundreds of pictures and i i see that all the all the pictures that i have with the homeless people i've just got you know i've thrown on a, a dirty t-shirt a dirty pair of jeans you know my hair isn't washed there's no makeup on there's no jewelry i'm just because i got up 
and we we turned our our kitchen into a basically a, a sandwich assembly line and we just made sandwiches for a long time and then we set out with these big bags there was no time for me to 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 think about myself and i i as i look back on that period in, in time i i think that that was probably the reason i i was so at peace and so happy was i just wasn't thinking about myself even basic things like you know washing my hair i mean mm-hmm. I, I i did obviously take showers but it wasn't a priority you know to get myself the way i would do if i was going to go to work for example I, I i just was out on the street trying to get food into people who were starving yeah i mean that's a that that's really incredible and i know you long enough to to know your heart to you know that that quick pivot that you started seeing that right away uh very I, quickly yeah, you know, just noticing it. I mean, especially living in Midtown, you know, it's a bustling area and how it just stops. You, it, it makes you notice that much more. I, I Again, I remember those days driving around and I, it wasn't just my neighborhood. They would ask me, can I drive here? Can I drive there? So I got a good taste of the South Shore of Long Island and just dropping at people's uh, houses, not interacting and then, you know, these people who were fearful because of either medical conditions or other, you know, age and, and all these things. And that you were doing that at an age when they were telling older people, not that you're old. I mean, you're, you're in good shape. You and Joel are, keep yourselves in, in, in really good shape. But that's still we didn't know a lot at, at that beginning. Right, right, right. So. Yeah, I, th- I was I, I don't think I knew what was happening at first. It wasn't until after I really started writing the book and trying to put down the whole picture of what was happening. So the book sort of has two literary arts. One is it was the, what was happening in New York City in the height of the pandemic. And then also what was happening to the homeless people um, during that time. I don't think I could have explained what was happening to me at that time. I don't think I even was that aware of how Mm -hmm. happy I was until later when it started to wear off, when life started to resume. And then I started to think about something other than everybody else. And I started to return to quote my normal life. And I realized, well, I'm not, I'm not as happy as I was. I'm not as at peace as I was. Um, so it was kind of a it was it was it was it was a pivot for me to to just realize that the less I thought about Tracy, the happier I was. And, and that's the magic of when you're helping people. Uh, you know, I know that the, the biggest things that happen to me is most of the time is when I'm helping somebody else or, or doing for, for others because we know we, we that's where the low flow the love flows freely out of us uh and then usually it's tough to for us to look internally to see that love or or to even allow us to have our love for ourselves but uh but you you you've always shared and cared for for so many people i mean we've already spoken to kevin uh at the beginning uh, you know in in your other book uh unblinded and you know the the, again the the noticing your ability to notice and care for people is one of your many gifts and so th- with this book, Unsheltered, how did you meet the, the other writer, the, the other character in the book? Well, uh, so, so Unsheltered Love, I, I, I want the, the other writer, her, 
her pen name is Maggie Wright. Um, W-R-I-G-H-T. Um, was one of the people that we befriended, one of the homeless people that we befriended. And she lived on the corner of Park Avenue and 30th Street for three years with her partner. And somewhat maybe a month into what Joel and I were doing, we said we, we, we should really concentrate on a smaller area of the city because at first we were just walking all over and we were spreading ourselves very thin and not really helping that many, not helping, not doing that much good. So we said, well, we're going to, there are a lot of people on Park Avenue. We live just off of Park Avenue in Murray Hill. And so we, we, we set out in a Southern direction down Park Avenue. We walked down to Union Square, at, which is at 14th Street and back up. And we sort of concentrated on that 24 block, 26 blocks of Park Avenue. And Matt, Maggie was living on the corner of Park Avenue and, and 30th Street. So every day I would pass by her and every day I would stop and we would, you know, give her some food and, and some, a few dollars. And, and then little by little, she started talking to me and sharing with me her story. She's a 40 year old um, white Jewish woman, uh, very smart, has two children, her parents are both retired teachers. She was brought up on Long Island in a nice area. And she became homeless as a result of having a root canal. So she was married and she got an emergency root canal and she got her first opioid prescription. I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of those. And she became addicted very quickly. And that led to, you know, a, a whole series of unfortunate incidents, which are chronicled in her story. And then eventually she tried to get off of the opioids. So she started drinking vodka and she became an alcoholic. And then she was living at the time with her, her husband's parents. And then it was sort of, I guess, agreed that it wasn't really working out. She, she needed to, to move out. So she did. And she had an apartment. Um, she had a good job at the time. Um, she was the director of a nursery school where she lived. And But she continued to drink and things went downhill pretty fast and she ended up homeless. So I met her on the street. <laughs> and then and here we are two and a half years later and we have a, a book that's getting ready to be published a month from now. And um and she's sheltered and she's clean and she's uh, back in college. Awesome. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it, it's great. I mean, being a warrior, you know, reco recovering for a lot. And that's, you know, the, the two things I want people to notice. Uh, one, we were talking about Park Avenue. People are living on Park Avenue, right? It, it, it's, which is almost, you know, ironic because there's so much wealth of people who live on, you know, Park Avenue and that there are so many homeless there. Presently, as well as definitely during the pandemic, and you know, we, we can't always think that they're just not in our neighborhood, and that's one of the things that I noticed that you and Joel always have have done and paid attention uh, to the people in your neighborhood, and that's the most important part. Uh, you know, when we talk about charity work, I always talk about Frank Shankowitz, uh, who created the Make a Wish Foundation, 
And through his, oh, yes. through, through his life, he's always said, everybody could do something. And it, it's just that moving that dial a little bit. It might not move a dial, but think about that person who you're assisting. We'll be back in a moment. Well, that's a nice song. Hey, hey, everybody. It's me, the launch dad himself, George Andriopoulos, the host of the LaunchCast, the co-host of Over My Dad Podcast. But more importantly, I'm here today on behalf of Launchpad 516 Studios, the podcast production company that makes those two shows, the one you're listening to now, and so many others possible. Now, what is Launchpad 516 Studios? Well, it's the brainchild of Launchpad 516 It's a podcast production company, and we help you from conceptualization to production to recording to post-production to monetization. The key word here, let's turn that hobby, that idea into a revenue stream. But more importantly, let's get that important idea out there and get your voice heard because that's what matters right now. Hit us up, launchpad516studios.com to find out more information. Or send us an email, podcast at lp516.com. DM me at Launchpad CEO on all the platforms. Let's chat. Let's get your voice heard. We're pretty good at this, guys. Don't let this offer slip by you. Later, guys. You're listening to Peace, Love, and Bring It Back with me, Uncle Dave, Dave Schmetzky. So I, I know that I also want to mention, want to talk, let you talk about that the proceeds, all the proceeds for this book are going to a shelter. Again, showing the, the, the bigness of your heart. Uh, so could you share that with us? Yes, yes. So um, the, the, the organization is Hand in Hand by Glenn. It's a nonprofit organization in Georgia, and they build tiny houses, um, which is what I've come to believe through my two and a half years now involvement with the homeless people is it's a very good thing to be able to do. The shelter system is broken. I don't think people really realize that. Um, I certainly didn't, but the shelter system is, it's difficult for them, which is why a lot of them prefer actually to live on the streets because they don't feel safe in shelters. There's, you know, things get stolen. There's continuous fights. And so the, the shelter system isn't, isn't, the answer. Mm-hmm. But what does appear to be very helpful are what we call SR single room occupancy units. And so this organization in Georgia has built a community of 60 tiny homes. And there is a, an entire group of homeless people living in these in this community in Georgia. They have um, food is provided, services are provided. Um, they, they try to help them get jobs and to basically reintegrate into society as Maggie has done. It's very difficult. I just can't even put into words how difficult it is for a homeless person to reintegrate into society once they've, they've sort of, you know, dropped. I I have this expression, they've dropped through the cracks on the sidewalk figuratively and almost literally. It's a whole psychology, which I'm still trying to understand through my relationship with Maggie, what really binds a person to this fate once they enter it. Because 
you would think that anybody given the opportunity to not be homeless would would just jump on that but it that's not the case they become they become very injured in many many different ways and of course there's alcoholism and drug abuse throughout almost all of them um in fact all of the people that we met except for one is either you know challenged by alcohol or or drugs or both and but it's far more than just a substance abuse their whole sense of identity is sort of shattered mm-hmm. so i decided to de- dedicate all the all the proceeds to um to this organization in in georgia called hand and hand in hand by glenn so the the nice thing my my publishers also they're very supportive of trying to help build homes they they donate a portion of their proceeds to habitat for humanity mm. so when i mentioned this to the publisher that this is what i wanted to do with the author proceeds from unsheltered love he offered to run a bestseller campaign on the book august 21st to august 28th which is a, basically a lost leader for them where they sell the ebook for one week only for 99 cents and that hopefully we'll get the the book out there into the hands of many people because most people will spend 99 cents and not only that'll hopefully create enough money you know to to get to start a nice little donation to hand in hand but more important than that because you're not going to make that much money you know from 99 cents because everybody you know takes a piece of it but you hopefully get the book out there and then people will read it and recommend it and then that will maybe generate you know some momentum so that some significant amount of contributions can be made to hand in hand but we'll see yeah <laughs> my no, third that, book you that, never know yeah that's that sounds great uh and we'll definitely make sure that this episode gets out the week before so people know about that uh that following week and we'll have the link on it uh, we'll make sure we have all the links uh if, if you could send me the link then that would be great we'll, we'll make sure that happens Okay, that's great. Thanks. Yeah, and, and that's really what it is. I, I again, I've I've known you for a while about just always giving back uh, because, and you've you've had a, a rough life. We're not going to go into that, but you've also I want to highlight all the the giving. I mean, you know, even our sharing that, that story about Kevin and his eyesight, and then being his friend. I mean, being his his one of the many people who protect him. I mean, I know we that's how we we spoke to about Kevin, uh, right. And then, uh, and, and, well, then you've, and then since I, since I've seen you, you've also become a a grandma. Uh, is it once yeah. or twice? Uh, twice, twice, twice. That's what I yeah. thought. I, I thought I saw something. So how beautiful! Yeah, time marches on. <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. No, Kevin. Kevin's story is actually take a take a minute to to just talk about that because he's a his name is Kevin Coughlin, and he is uh, a man that also lives in New York City, and he lives in our neighborhood, Murray Hill, and my husband. Uh, noticed him on the streets because he was always walking his seeing eye dog and Joel was walking our lab. Uh, Kevin's dog was, was a yellow lab seeing eye dog and our, our dog was a yellow lab. And um, so one day he came home extremely, cause it was actually was um, it was Easter morning of 2016 and he came charging back into the apartment and said, you, you know, that blind man in our neighborhood. And I said, yeah, so well, he can see again, and I was like, "Oh wow, that's amazing!" Did he? Did he? You know, is he on some kind of a drug? Did he have an operation? And he said, "No, he just you know, he, he, he just started 
to be able to see again. So I knew there was a story there, and but I, I didn't think much about it. And a few weeks later, Joel came back and said that this that Kevin wanted somebody to help him write his story. So I did help him write the story. But he is the first and the only known human being in the world who has regained their sight um, after 20 years of blindness from this rare genetic disorder that he ha- has, which is called Leber's hereditary optic neuropathy. Unfortunately, what happens with that is a, 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 a person uh, in their old in their 20s usually just suddenly goes blind. Kevin went from 20-20 vision to totally blind almost overnight. I, he went to bed one night, he could see, he woke up the next morning, and he couldn't. And this is the typical pattern. And then 20 years later, his sight started to come back. And to this day, you know, the, 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 med- the medical community has not been able to explain it. He does chronicle in his story, Unblinded, what he did do. Um, lots of, you know, different things with herbs and this and that. Um, of course, praying, meditation and that, all that stuff. But um, they, you know, nobody really knows at this point how his optic nerve regenerated because the the belief is that once the optic nerve dies or any nerve, you know, it's, it doesn't regenerate, but Kevin's did. And so his story is, uh, is quite remarkable too. Yeah. And that's, you know, both stories sound incredible. I can't wait to read the new book and uh, you know, uh, which will which will be out next week, uh, or it'll be out if depending on when people listen to it. But uh, you know, it's it's really incredible. So, what else are you doing? You know, are you, your path. We we talk about our paths, and it, it's just incredible. Uh, what else are you doing besides? I mean, I just want to understand. Uh, let everybody understand. She also is a partner in a law firm. This is not something that's that's. She's just in retirement. I don't know that she knows what that word retirement means besides taking care of family and writing uh, three books, to, you know, has won awards. Each, well, well, the new book hasn't been released yet, but the, the books have won awards. So it's not just, you know, I wrote a book and it, it goes out. It's changing the world. Uh, so what, what else is on your path to help shift the world to make it a better place? Well, that's, so I spend a lot of time, um, writing because you know, writing is a very intensive exercise and i also as you said i i uh, i have a law firm with a, a man that i used to work with when i was working in corporate america and we've i guess we've had this law firm now for maybe tw- 12 12 years mm-hmm. and um so there's work to be done there and then i do have um as you mentioned, two grandchildren. My daughter has a three-year-old, and she just had a, a baby this summer. So I, I do help out with that. Uh, we have a son as well as a daughter, so we have two children and two grandchildren. And um, I also have a foundation called the College Education Milestone Foundation, where we put um, very high-performing students that are can't get together the money to go to college, we put them through, through college and we've put 44 kids through, through college now. And that, so that foundation is, is open to anybody who wants to apply for a scholarship. Um, again, the two things we look for very good students, but their parents just can't afford to cover all the tuition costs for, Mm. for college. So, um, it's called the College Education Milestone Foundation. So there's time to be spent with that. And um, 
that's that's it. <laughs> and that and that keeps you more than enough busy enough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, and you know, I guess it's like anything else. You never know what's going to literally walk into your life uh, that you become aware. Well, that's that's right. And and interestingly enough, I I never had on my bucket list to become a writer. I'm, I I call myself an accidental writer because I knew when I was 16 years old I wanted to be a lawyer, and I never changed my mind. And I I I put my mind on that goal and went, went to college and I had my you know I, I took I majored in political science and I tried to get good grades because I knew that would be necessary to get into law school and then I went to law school and and started working as a lawyer and so I I guess I've been was admitted to the bar in 1980 so whatever that is 40 42 years ago so I never thought I wanted to be a writer and the and the first book just sort of came to me sort of out of thin air and then the set so did the second and so did the third I, I i wasn't looking really to write books that wasn't something i wanted to do but i found it very fulfilling to do that especially the second and the third book because kevin really wanted to to tell his story but he needed somebody to help him write it um mm-hmm. and and then when i really realized what was happening with the homeless people in new york city i felt very driven to try and share what I had learned um, about that situation from the hours and hours and hours that I've spent since March of 2020 interacting with the homeless people in our neighborhood and trying to help. So uh, well, it's been yeah. as long as I've known you, you know, your voice, uh, you know, and, and, and you speak up for the voice of others. Uh, as well, and and it shows through your book. Your your heart shows through both the the books that I've read, and that's the most important part. Is, is that's what you do, and I, I I can't wait to see this book and read the book, uh, and also then to see what else is going to go on. This is always every time seeing you either on social media or our conversations. It's just always like, what else are you doing? Uh, you, you know, you know when you're moved out of corporate America. You had a restaurant. You, you were doing a whole bunch of things. and We did. <laughs> I, yeah, I had a restaurant for 10 years. That's right. Yeah. That, so, um, I unfortunately had to close during the pandemic. It was many restaurants uh, didn't make it through the pandemic. And, and I didn't, I wasn't involved at the restaurant at the time. I had given my, my shares to my partner several years before the pandemic hit because um, I, I that I really didn't have time to be in the restaurant anymore because of trying to work. And then I had that point, the second book. And when you, when you get, publish a book, you have, there's work to do even after you publish it. So I, I, I gave all of my restaurant shares to my partner, but unfortunately, you know, the restaurant had to close for an extended period during the pandemic as all restaurants did. And she wasn't able to, um, she wasn't able to keep it. She wasn't, it, it yeah. didn't survive. The I, I, I can't imagine, uh, you know, most restaurants, uh, how, how they got through it uh, just by yeah. either the skin or, or they're still digging out. And at, right. at some point you have to take that, that position. Uh, right. To, you know, and at least in, in, in where, where I live in Murray Hill in New York city, I would say 50% of the restaurants didn't make it. I mean, restaurants around me that had been there forever. I, I I'm, I'm just thinking about all like, you probably know Scotty's on on Lexington Avenue. It's a diner. It must have been there for mm-hmm. forty years or something. It didn't survive. It just it's it, it's very. I understand the restaurant business having been in it myself, but it's almost impossible to survive because you you still have to pay rent. 
and you and you have you know you, you're trying to to do right by your employees and on unless you could get some significant governmental assistance um and even then so at least 50 percent of the restaurants in midtown manhattan have closed yeah. now things are starting to open you know new restaurants are coming and life is coming back and new, midtown manhattan now resembles pretty much what it was before the pandemic not completely but you know it's it's close we're, we're, we're really close i remember this i had when i did my tedx talk uh, I, I went into the city the weekend before to meet uh, some some other uh, speakers for the TEDx and to, to practice with them and things like that. And that was the first time I was in the city since uh, March when, when when the world shut down. And driving there, living as a New Yorker, as a you know New Yorker all my life, going into the city and then even leaving the city at five o'clock on a Sunday, getting home in forty minutes is unheard of. <laughs> Uh, I know. You know, even getting out of the city might be unheard of at forty. Uh, but, right. Uh, I can't imagine what living what was it in. You know, living in the city during that time, and you know, it's beautiful that you and Joel really did that and knew to keep your your physical health up and protection, and knew the the science behind it, and to create this book, Unsheltered Love, uh, because that's really what you gave. You gave them actually sheltered love. They they became to rely on you. And much like anybody else who assisted during this time, you know, we, we've grasped at straws and you've always been that piece of land out of, out of the ocean that people come running to. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay. Now, I, 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 since you're an author and I'm going to put you on the spot, we, ha- we have this thing as you and I talk about the, the, the path, but also about grounding ourselves. What are some of the things that you do to ground yourself? Well, certainly writing. Writing requires getting into a meditative state. So um, I also meditate and I also pray. And one thing that I, one little trick that I, I have found that works really well for me is that if I feel myself, you know, coming off center, I think about something that I'm grateful for. So everybody has things that they can think of that they're grateful. It doesn't really matter what it is, but I've noticed that if I, you know, if I start feeling you know, anxious or, or or I'm getting upset about something, I just shift. I'm like, oh, okay, I see you're, you know, I see Tracy, you're thinking about this, you're thinking about that. And I just immediately think about something that I'm, and it, it really doesn't matter what it is. There's something about thinking about something you're grateful for that, that grounds you. Mm. Yep. So th- those would be, those would be the, the main things. Okay, those are always great. I mean, it's, it's that keeping that present and uh, grounding yourself. And where I go with this is uh, you might not realize, or a lot of people don't, that the word earth and heart are the same letters, just rearranged differently. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I often talk about the R and heart. So what's, what's something that maybe is joyous, or what, what, what would be an R that's in your heart? Besides Rossau, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you mean a, a, word a word that starts with R? Yeah. Um, reflection. I I I I learned this. I think slowly over time, but the more I just observe and also observe myself, what's going on in myself, I I start to understand myself better, and then other people better, and life better. So. 
I spent a lot of time, what I would say, in my observer self, which is a, a, where I'm just observing how I feel, what I'm doing, what I'm saying, and what's going on around me. Yeah, no, I think that's perfect, uh, you know, because reflection is one of those big, important parts about what we do. And even when whatever we do, that, that reflection, that self-reflection, could I do things differently? Could there be an improvement? Could there, how do I fine tune things? How I recalibrate uh, some things? Uh, that, that, that's great. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time. And is there anything else thank you want you. to leave us with, you know, any other messages? I mean, you've given us a lot of things to think about. I know I can't wait for the book to come out. I've said it a few times. And uh, is there anything you'd like to share with us uh, on the way out? Um, one last parting thing I would maybe encourage is just um, that when, when, I mean, we all, I mean, you know, as you, you alluded to, I've had, I, I had some challenges in my life to overcome. Um, but the more I was able to just look at, rather than be in it, I guess I'm going back to the observer self that I've already shared that piece. But to, to me, that has been the key for my personal transformation is that the more time I spend as the observer, as opposed to being wrapped up, you know, getting my knickers <laughs> twisted up about this or that, even when that happens, if I step out and just, oh, okay, Tracy, I see you're getting upset about this, this, or this. Oh, I see, Tracy, you're thinking about this, this, or this, something neg obviously something negative. I, I, it, it quickly starts to shift so that I come out of the experience of being wrapped up in, in whatever it is that's causing me to be upset and look at it almost outside of myself. And that allows almost a, a very quick um, calming down. Yep. You're taking those moments. I'm sure you know what I, I'm sure you, you spent a lot of the time in your observer self. Uh, I, yeah, that's how I spent, that's how I got through the beginning of COVID. I was going through a lot of challenges uh, and uh, I, I, doing that, you then realize if you're honest with yourself, you're able to see the triggers that you, that you have within yourself. Yes. Uh, you know, I was in the house by myself, me and the, the chinchilla. Uh, so there was nobody to trigger me. And the, the things that triggered me, I knew that that, was the areas where I needed the most healing. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's the, absolutely the key. The things that um, I call them pings <laughs> and the things that ping, ping a person are the areas that um, need attention because life is very reflective. And, and so, you know, we tend to think that, Oh, if only this would happen, that would happen, you know, try to fix things from the outside, but it's much easier actually to, fix things from the inside because everything that's happening to us, everything that we experience and see is really a reflection of our own state of consciousness at any given point of time, which of course is primarily, you know, associated with our thoughts and, and, and what we're doing and what we're saying. Um, that's why when you're helping others, you're really in a, you're really in sort of a energy zone. That's very positive. Yep. No, and that's how it is. It is, and you feel so much better when you're in that zone. 
uh, nothing could stop you. Uh, I, I was never comfortable sitting in, in my house alone, and now uh, I, I sort of enjoy it. I, I, I understand it. I remember uh, one time you, t- you telling me about your children uh, going through those teenage years, and I always yeah. think about you. I'm like, all right, I can get through this. I can get through this. <laughs> Somehow I'm going to yeah. get through this. Um, yeah. But it, it's, it's all good, and that is that reflective zone. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And, you know, I can't wait to read the book, and we'll, we'll put all the things in the notes, both charities in the notes. So that way anybody wants to do it, you're one of those goons for good when I talk about people yeah. who are doing, you know, I always know somebody. You know, if you want to help somebody, there's a million people who know or are doing those things. And thank you for doing those things. And thank you for showing up today. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really nice to see you again. Yeah, it's great seeing you. And for yeah. everybody else, just make sure that you find peace and love in your life. And when you do, you know, bring a bat. But remember, that's bringing an awesome thought, doing something awesome, and swing and hit your sweet spot and knock it out of the park. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really glad that you're enjoying our show. Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios. Executive produced by David Chemetsky and George Andriopoulos. Music selections by James Grant, Zach Nelson, and James Gaither, and licensed through Storyblock. Sound effects and sponsorship music licensed through Epidemic Sound. Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat is hosted with Podbean. Subscribe to our show wherever podcasts are available. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share with all of your friends. Follow us on Facebook at Peace, Love, and Bring a Back. Follow me, Uncle Dave, Dave Shemetsky, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. You can find all those links and more info at davidshemetsky.com. For show ideas, feedback, guest inquiries, or just a chat, reach out to me at peacelovebringabat at gmail.com. For sponsorship and media inquiries, reach out to peacelovebringabat at lp516.com. Make sure to follow all the great podcasts produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Today's journey has come to a close, my friends. I hope the seeds of peace and love continue to grow for each one of you. Remember that peace and love surrounds you and will assist you to rise again. But don't forget to bring a bat for what you believe in. Namaste. Namaste.